Hello and welcome to yet another episode of the Pure Tokyo Scope podcast. I'm Patrick Macias, the author of Tokyo Scope, the Japanese cult film companion. Oh yeah? Well, I'm Matt Alt, the author of Pure Invention, How Japan Made the Modern World. How you like that? What you gonna do about that, Matt? This is kind of going out as a request to Dirk, who runs the podcast called VHS US. He asked us to list off some of our favorite Japanese films that made us that are not anime. Interesting, even intriguing. So who's going to kick this off? I have some ideas. I have some ideas about movies. This this actually, when you mentioned this to me yesterday, I was like, oh, that's going to be easy. And then I was like, I kept thinking up like movies that had really affected me. And most of them were anime or tokusatsu. So yeah, this is the thing is those are the ground rules is we are not allowed to choose anime or like movies with like giant rubber monsters in them or even CGI monsters in them. Or even spandex. No spandex is allowed. The stuff that we didn't spend our youths just mainlining. These are the Japanese films that got us out of the anime and tokusatsu ghetto. Yeah, no, and, or, you know, some of these I was watching kind of in in concert with that. I don't think I ever watched a non-anime, non-tokusatsu Japanese movie before I got into those things. So I guess you're right if, if you want to look at it as, as kind of a life preserver of maturity uh, amidst all of the juvenilia. I have a list, and I checked it twice, of five movies that over the years from Japan, I think really capture the kind of reasons that I love Japanese kind of, you know, visual filmmaking. It's it's tough because there's so many movies that I actually really like, but I don't think are kind of formative to me. Like these are movies that I think about in some form a lot. Like they're always either being referenced in my mind or they're always things that I come back to or I've seen multiple times. Does that, does that sound about right for what we're choosing? We're not just choosing like the movie we saw last week and liked, right? No, they have to have some kind of a uh, connection to your formative development as a human being. Okay. Like Eroski Doji, except without the anime. <laughs> So, so I picked the live action version of Urotsuki Doji. No, I'm just kidding. There's a live action La Blue Girl. Oh I think my Video God. Search in Miami has it. If you oh want my order God. I'm sure it was really high budget. It's tough because some of my favorite, like, you know, directors dabble in the tokusatsu mediums and things like that. You know what I mean? Like filmmaking is a special effects medium, even if you're not like having, I don't know, Nick Adams, like surfing a UFO to Jupiter uh, on it. We can have special effects. They just can't be like special effects driven. That's that's the rule, correct? You can't have the word Godzilla or Gamera or Daima Jean in the title. Right. Okay, you want me to start? Yeah. I was going to do them in order, but I want to build up to the towering inferno, the crescendo. So I'm going to I'm going to start with one that probably going to cause some groans because it shows up on, you know, best of Japanese film lists all the time, but I still think it deserves it. Rashomon by Akira, not the anime, but Akira Kurosawa. Oh, it's Akira. I have a feeling there's no Kurosawa films on your list. And like picking Kurosawa feels like the safest of the safe. But oh, how wrong you are, but you'll have to wait for my list. Oh, ooh, okay. Now I'm intrigued. I'm even more intrigued. The reason I like Rashomon, so Rashomon is based on an Akutagawa uh, Ryunosuke uh, short story called In a Grove. And it is about a murder that takes place and the kind of inquisition into uh, uh, who the culprit was. They have a bunch of suspects. And when they interview each one, they get a completely plausible but incompatible story. And like, it's a great kind of philosophical concept because it, it cuts into so much of, of what we know to be true about reality that like there is no objective reality. Uh, it's well acted. It's incredibly well shot. Like, God, I love the scenes like where they turn the camera up to face at the sun. It's just like something you just never hear about in film school. Like they're walking through the forest. Just beautiful, beautiful stuff. But the, the thing I really like best about it is, okay, there's this murder and you have these people 
people who might be responsible for it who are being questioned. And then Kurosawa completely zigzags and has the next suspect isn't actually a person. They call it a spirit medium and like channel the ghost of the murdered person who tells their version of the story. And their version of the story isn't compatible with any of the, the observers or, or witnesses or, or suspects. So I don't know. It's just an amazing film, like from a philosophical standpoint, it's an amazing film from a visual standpoint. It's a tour de force. I assume you've seen it. Oh, I've seen Rashomon. Yeah, definitely. I like the scene where Morpheus comes out and like lets them choose between the red pill and the blue yes. pill if you want to know what is the truth. Actually, there's a really funny anecdote about that where like, you know, Kurosawa had been getting bashed on by the studio head because he was spending so much money in special effects and, you know, sets and things like that. And he's like, it's okay. It's okay. Listen, I promise. I'm only going to do one set in this film. It's going to be real easy. Just one set. And the, you know, the president of the film company is like, okay. And then like, Kurosawa builds this insane, insane, like one of the greatest sets of all time of the destroyed Rashomon gate, which used to be in times of old, we're talking like medieval times, there was this beautiful gate that you passed through to get into Kyoto. And when kind of Kyoto and all of Japanese civilization fell into chaos around that period, the gate kind of started to deteriorate and collapsed. It was sort of a metaphor for, you know, Japanese civilization as a whole at the time. And Kurosawa built this like destroyed gate. It's like one of the most amazing, amazing sets. It's so sad to me that it doesn't still exist somewhere. And it took up the entire budget for them. Like it, they went way over budget because they made this gate so perfectly. Yeah. I mean, huge, huge film for Japanese cinema in general. I mean, not only did it kind of put Kurosawa on the world stage, but also Toshiro Mifune. Yes. I mean, it kind of swept the Venice Film Festival in 51 and, and just basically like just put like a giant, you know, mark in the ground for Japanese cinema to come. Definitely. Definitely. So, okay, Rashomon. And I, these are in no particular real order because I just, when you get to this level, I just don't think you can be like, oh, number one, bro, Rashomon, you know? Top 10 things you don't know about Rashomon. Exactly. Directors hate this one trick. But, you know, it's very rare that a movie gives you like an idiom and like we still use the Rashomon effect today to talk about how like nobody's visions of reality ever seem to match up with one another. I think there's an episode of Sanford and Son that's very similar to Rashomon. I think there's an episode of American Democracy set in 2016 to now that has to do with this too. <laughs> but anyway, number two in no particular order, uh, I'm going to pick Ringu. Do you know this film, Patrick? Have you ever heard uh, of this? You mean Ring? Ringu? Ringu came out in what year? Do you remember? It was like 90... 1998. 98. So it's actually pre-Battle Royale, which is another film that's not in my list, but is, is amazing. It's it's the J-horror film. Would you agree? Oh, definitely. Yeah, it really opened the floodgates for J-horror. And it kind of became like a lightning rod for like a whole new generation of Japanese film and Japanese film that was going to be discovered by like new audiences. So right. it's not just J-horror, but it's kind of like more indie cinema, new genre cinema. But Ringu was kind of like the 800-pound gorilla in the room. The thing I love about it is how it like it incorporates all of these aspects of traditional like Japanese spooky horror folklore and updates them in this completely modern setting that felt like totally believable. I mean, even even when it was unbelievable, like the idea of a haunted video cassette. Hey, to any kids, to the one person under the age of 55 who's listening to this, a video cassette was a way that you watched movies back in time. You'd put it in this thing called a VCR and you'd hit a button and you'd play it. But Ringu haunted wells. 
like and that image of Sadako, the ghost, you know, the the kind of you know spirit that is haunting all of these people, with her like jerky movements and like her dirty white robes and her and her like filthy black hair that's obscuring her face. All of that stuff is actually taken from traditional portrayals of Yurei, which are Japanese ghosts from folklore and and like fairy tales and things like that. And translating that imagery into kind of a modern digital analog, I guess, format was just so, so, so groundbreaking. And have you noticed like Sadako is everywhere these days? This is a big reason why I picked this. Like there's Sadako inspired, like I think she single-handedly changed the idea of what like a spooky, scary antagonist would be on the screen. And now in America, you see all of these Sadako inspired baddies too. Yeah. Oh, there's also like a zillion sequels and they've done wacky promotional stunts like Sadako throwing like the first pitch like of the baseball season at like right. the game and stuff like that. Like it's like literally gone the route of like Freddy or Jason like just starts out really scary becomes like increasingly goofy as time goes on. But yeah, I think it had a seismic impact not only on Japanese movies but global horror thriller cinema definitely. Oh, for sure. For, I mean, I think like Ringu and Rashomon are almost like kind of a binary star pair. They both have supernatural elements in them and they're totally, totally different movies. Like one is, I guess, considered fine cinema, though I don't think it was back in the day when it was actually uh, shown, Rashomon. And the other is more of a kind of a horror exploitation film. But the inseparability of the Japanese traditional cultural elements from the modern ones is something that I really think, it's what it elevated them from beyond movies just to becoming kind of cultural idioms that went beyond the borders of Japan. So, you know, I was watching It, like the remake of It, and there's like a Sadako type scene in there. And I was like, wow, this thing is just everywhere now. Like, Sadako is everywhere. So that's why I picked Ring for number two. We're going to take a real shift here now. We're going to shift from these kind of pleasant, I don't know if you call Ringu pleasant, you know, kind of uh, highfalutin experiences and go to a, a film that's very near and dear to my heart because it just totally transformed the idea of what I thought Japanese filmmakers were capable of. And that is, drum roll please, Violent Cop. Beat Takeshi. Love that movie. Takeshi Kitano. Yeah. I mean, I, I was going through, what year is that? 1989. Okay. So I saw it in college when I was going through my Quentin Tarantino, Hong Kong, violent movie phase. And Tarantino's break, Reservoir Dogs, was famously almost a shot-for-shot remake of a Hong Kong movie called City on Fire. So like the Asian influence on what was turning into American new, new wave cinema, I don't know what you call post-Tarantino, was like obvious to everybody who was watching back then. But we all thought it was like that Hong Kong was the pinnacle of that. Like Chow Yun-Fat, John Woo, you have a better Tomorrow, you have The Killer. And those are great, great, great films. Like, don't get me wrong, extraordinarily influential. But out of nowhere, B. Takeshi, who I had only known from like making fart jokes on Japanese TV uh, and like being in like Takeshi's Castle, that like, you know, live action game show on Japanese TV, which I've watched in bootleg tapes as a kid, or like a stand up comedian, suddenly produces this film, Violent Cop, that is like the, one of the most nihilistic violent cop dramas I'd ever seen to that point. Like you've, I, I believe you've seen it. What do you think about violent cop? I love violent cop. Uh, it was given to me on bootleg tape by the same guy who had given me my bootleg tapes of better tomorrow one, better tomorrow two. So he was like really tuned into that, like new violent Asian cinema thing going on. And I loved it. And I thought it was really great. Didn't really watch it again until I moved to Japan. And I realized that violent cop was mostly shot around Shinagawa. These like real locations. They didn't use the volume 
volume. There's no green screen in the movie. Right. They mostly shot guerrilla style around Shinagawa, which isn't too far from where I live. And so I just kind of wanted to be like, well, here I am. Well, let's watch a Tokyo movie. And it is a great Tokyo movie in that respect. You know, it's not like the downtown glittering skyscrapers. It's kind of like, you know, just like the crappy everyday concrete jungle. <laughs> well, I, you know, I had basically only watched like anime up until that point and like, you know, science fiction films, which, which present a very sanitized version of Tokyo or a fantasticized, fantastical version of Tokyo. So seeing this like gritty Tokyo where like drugs are being sold and people are being trafficked and like the cops are dirty and like they don't care. There, there was never any moral ambiguity or question as to whether Takeshi Kitano was going to like take, you know, his character was going to take bribes and kill people. Like it was just, it was in his nature as like a, a horrible kind of human being. It was interesting because the nihilism of that film, the darkness of it was on a completely different register than that of the stuff John Woo was making, which was almost like balletic. It was very theatrical. They were almost like musicals with like gunshots instead of musical notes. And Violent Cops stripped all of that away. And it was just this brutal, brutal view of the, the kind of shadows of, of the big city in Japan. Yeah, it's a kind of a noir, but it's like a daylight, fluorescent lit, like office room noir, which is like pretty unique. And Vita Keshi did more films in that vein, but Violent Cop is very stripped down, very lean, very mean. Originally, Kinji Fukusaku, the great Yakuza movie director, was going to direct it. He got sick, gave it to Beat Takeshi, who put his own stamp on it. So it's a good one, yeah. No, definitely. And Takeshi Kitano, we, we call him Takeshi Kitano when we're talking about his filmmaking career, not Beat Takeshi. But Takeshi Kitano's films regularly show up on like best of Japanese cinema lists. But usually it's like Hanabi, uh, Fireworks, which shows up. Sonatine is another Sonatine, one. which I like. They're great. They're, they're really great films. But like for sheer impact, and like if we're talking about the films that made us, Violent Cop was definitely it. Bang. Bam. Um, I like that. I like fluorescent noir. I, I think that's a fluorescent lit noir. I think it's an absolutely great way to call it. Next one is actually the first non-science fiction, non-tokusatsu you know, film I saw. I cannot remember who showed this to me, whether it was my wife. I think it was Hiroko who showed Because when I, we started dating, she's like, you know, there's other things in Japan besides Macross. You know that, right? Like you're, you're aware that like Japanese people made other films besides sides like Crusher Joe, correct? There's Common Rider V3 versus Destron, for example. And and you know, my long-suffering wife showed me this film, which I love to death to this very day. It is The Man Who Stole the Sun. Oh, great choice. Great choice. Now, this film is really interesting. It's interesting from a variety of standpoints. It stars Kenji Suwada, who is like a famous heartthrob in the 70s, late 60s? Late 60s with his band and then as a solo artist when he changed his name to Julie in the 70s. Yeah, he's just great. He's like a great artist. His his songs are just really like amazing. And this was his moment to kind of transition out of being this 70s teen idol. And then he he did this movie where he plays a, a high school teacher who, a, a kind of disaffected high school teacher who decides to build a nuclear bomb in his house and uh, threaten to detonate it to, you know, kind of hold the city of Tokyo hostage. It's sort of like Breaking Bad in a lot of ways and that you have this chemistry teacher who decides to, 
you know, turn to the dark side of the force or whatever. But it's just, it's acted really well. And it, and it's set up between Sawada Kenji's character and a cop who is trying to track him down. And that cop is Bunta Sugawara. One of the great legendary Yakuza movie actors of all time. Yakuza movie actor. He's in the Truck Yaro movies. And if you are of more recent vintage, uh, you may know him as that spider guy. He voices the spider guy in Spirited Away, who is like down in the boiler room, who kind of helps out Chihiro with their problems. No anime, Matt. No anime. We can talk about anime. It exists, Patrick. Are you aware there's this medium called anime and that people watch it? Um, But The Man Who Stole the Sun is also really interesting because it was written by a foreign guy and not just any foreign guy. Do you know who? Leonard Schrader, the brother of Paul Schrader. Yes. Who rose to fame by co-authoring the script to Yakuza uh, starring Robert Mitchum, correct? That's correct. Yeah. And then they went their separate ways, uh, figuratively and literally. I think they they literally had a big falling out over that movie, as I read in, a, in an interview later on. But Paul went on, of course, famously to write Taxi Driver. Autofocus. And he's still making movies today. Yeah. The God's Lonely Man movies, which like um, Man Who Stole the Sun kind of feels that way. You know, it's not very clear what his motivation is exactly. Like at one point, he's like telling the government, I'll detonate this bomb unless you let the Rolling Stones play at Budokan. Yes. I'm sure this is based on a true story. He's like cooking up the atomic bomb in his oven and he's like whistling the Mighty Adam Astro Boy theme song. Yes. Yes. With all of that, there's realism to it. Like he has to tape up his room. It looks like a like a meth lab or something. And like things start dying from like radiation poisoning around him. It's like, it's the kind of thing that I think only a Japanese filmmaker who was raised in an environment of a country that had actually suffered being bombed by a nuclear weapon. Yeah, but this is crazy because right now there is no release date for Oppenheimer. Like that's a film that may never be released theatrically in Japan. I'm sure it'll come out eventually on streaming and home video, but The Man Who Stole the Sun came out in 1979, which is about a guy who's basically making a home-cooked atomic bomb. Yes. And, you know, we should probably save the Oppenheimer thing for a different time because I actually think it's really interesting. I've been speaking to Japanese people, all sorts of Japanese people at Oppenheimer, and few of them are aware the film is coming out. None of them have expressed any interest in wanting to see it. Like, it's just, why would you make a movie about that guy? Like, he made a weapon that killed, like, hundreds of thousands of people. You saw what's trending on Twitter today as we're recording this. Hashtag no Barbieheimer. It's angry Japanese people. Like, yelling at pictures of people smiling in their movie theaters in America. I saw Barbie and I saw Oppenheimer on the same day. Isn't it fascinating? Thank you for telling me about that. I'm going to look into that and maybe write something up in my Substack. Check it out. But anyway, The Man Who Stole the Sun is probably as good of an like a double feature with Oppenheimer as you could possibly imagine. Besides Barbie? Besides Barbie. I think you should watch The Man Who Stole the Sun. The Man Who Stole the Sun is really, really great. I highly recommend it. Leonard Schrader. Just like foreign people who had such an understanding of Japanese culture and worked it into their films in ways both obvious and not. Because I think you can make an argument Taxi Driver is kind of the first otaku movie in a lot of ways. Uh, It's been said before, but I I agree. I know that's not Leonard, that's Paul, but still, I kind of think of them together, even though they worked independently for most of their careers. It's kind of like Greg Brady and Peter Brady, you know? (laughs) They're different, but there's a lot of similarities. It's like Crusher Joe and Crusher Bob. Is there a Crusher Bob? That's my sequel that I'm going to write. So anyway, The Man Who Stole the Sun. Please, if you like Japanese movies, seek it out and watch it. And now we're going to end, not with a whimper, but a bang. Makoto Kobayashi's Kwaidan. 
Do you know, Patrick? It's scary. Yeah, that's a Toho's big budget omnibus horror movie based on the chilling tales of Lacadio Hearn. Yes, Lacadio Hearn wrote a book called Quiet, and actually, Quiet. It's written with a W because that is echoing the pronunciation. The pronunciation of Japanese has kind of shifted from times of old. Back then, it was more Kaidan. Now we know these things as Kaidan, which is a scary story, a horror story, a spook story. Lafcadio Hearn, in the turn of the 20th century, was the first person of any kind. Japanese people didn't write these stories down because everybody knew them. They were like oral traditions. He wrote them down in a book. And when that book was translated back into Japanese, it caused a sensation. This is like in the early 20th century. Um, and it's why he's like kind of a beloved presence in Japanese literature, even though he never spoke Japanese or wrote it. But Kwaidan was turned into, as you said, a big budget Toho movie in the 60s. And it is the great granddaddy of J-horror. It caused like a real stir in Japan and abroad when it came out. It's interesting because it's an omnibus, like it's separate stories because each one of these is like a different folktale, but it's so atmospheric. It's like probably one of the first exposures that Westerners had to Japanese yokai culture because the snow woman, Yuki Onna is in there who kind of sucks the heat out of you and freezes you to death in the mountains. So, so many aspects of Japanese folklore in there. Highly recommended. Just like big, gorgeous, high production values, like surrealist special effects. Get the Criterion Blu-ray if you can of this one. Don't watch it on YouTube. It actually won, I, I think it won the, the Palme d'Or, no, it won the special jury prize at the 65 Cannes Film Festival. And it got an Academy Award nomination. So this is like an early, early kind of cool Japan. Japan being seen as some producer of something other than the mayhem of World War II, you know? in the 60s. I mean, seriously, if you're in the 60s America, like you thought about Japan, you probably thought about, you know, one of your family members had been fighting them in the war. It was like 10 more years until the Arnold's wedding episode of Happy Days where the Fonz shows up in a kimono. I saw those images you were posting on Facebook. Oh my God. Pat Morita. What is it? Pat Morita is part of the Happy Days universe? He's Arnold from Arnold's. That's right. God, it's been so long since I've seen it. Al took over after Arnold left, but Pat Morita as Arnold, the owner of Arnold. I just cringe at the images of seeing people wearing like kimono, like seeing, uh, you know, the Henry Winkler wearing a kimono, seeing like every Japanese stereotype deployed in the in this Milwaukee. It's Milwaukee, right? That's where Happy Days is set in this Milwaukee idiom. I, I really pity any Japanese person who was living in Milwaukee in the 1960s. I spent a lot of time in Milwaukee. In this, my, my dad's from Milwaukee, and we used to spend a lot of time there in the uh, when I was a kid growing up, 70s, 80s, and. And uh, while I love Milwaukee, it is, is near and dear to my heart. Milwaukee of that era was not exactly what I would think of as the most socially progressive town in the world. One thing I didn't know about Pat Morita until I looked this up is uh, his family owned a chop suey joint in Sacramento, California. And he always used to joke like the irony of like Japanese people running a chop suey restaurant was not lost upon him. Actually, aren't the fortune cookies sold at Chinese restaurants? Aren't those actually, they were originally made in Japan, I believe. It's a wacky, what, 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 how far we've come from Asaki Kobayashi's Kwaidan to Happy Days <laughs> and uh, Pat Morita. So anyway, that, that's me. Those are my uh, beloved, beloved films that made me from Japan. I highly recommend them to everybody. I think, and unlike when I was your age, they're all available. Like you can get them either from Criterion Channel or streaming or Amazon Prime or like whatever. They're all out there now. 
You don't have to get them on VHS tape from like a scary guy at a comic book convention or anything. And get like cursed that. and get cursed. And then you have to, the funny thing about, the funny thing about that whole gimmick where like you got cursed by the videotape and had to make somebody else watch it is that it just felt like being an anime fan. Like you saw anime and like your life was derailed and then you tried to make other people watch it. Does that basically describe most of your life in the eighties and early nineties? And on that note, thank you so much for listening to our show. Please continue to support it. Please continue to leave nice reviews and subscribe and stuff like that. And we'll be back next week with a new one. See you then. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.